Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. I am extraordinarily excited today to have Nis Frome, co-founder and VP of product for Feedback Loop, on the show. So Feedback Loop specializes in always-on consumer data, right? So big companies like Farmer Insure, uh, Humana, Uber. And what I think is really interesting is it's, it's about foresight into what will happen in the future uh, rather than insights into what have already happened. Uh, and just as you can imagine, as product managers, all the ways you could use that kind of data and thinking uh, about new product offerings and testing concepts and going to market plans and, and, and places. And, and one of the great things too about this is really looking at how to make that data accessible for all of us, uh, not just behind gates uh, where you're in a long, large queue of projects. So welcome, Nis. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. To start, why don't you give our listeners just a bit of context about you and a little bit more about Feedback Loop. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as you, you kind of gave a lot of the background here, but I'll add a little bit of context. So uh, we started this business about seven years ago, and I've worn just about every different hat. So I, I liked how you kind of described the audience, I think, as a market and data-driven professionals. That's kind of what I feel like if, you know, the hat today is VP of product, but, you know, the other, a few years ago was VP of marketing. So um, really just been very close to the customer since we started the business, figuring out everything from the go-to-market messaging and now to the actual, you know, features and functionality. And so as also you described, you know, there's kind of a supply and demand problem that exists within most organizations where uh, there's a lot more people that need to make decisions and a lot more decisions that need to be made than there are actual experts who know how to execute on research and inform those decisions. So how do you really satisfy all that supply when there's such limited demand? And that's really what we set out to do with Feedback Loop. And, and making research more accessible to more decision makers, whether or not they have research expertise. And you guys talk about that as agile research, or you talk about it a little bit as democratizing research. Um, mm-hmm. So let's 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 dig in a little bit on that, right? So let's let's talk about um, why why is that so important? Yeah, so I think it's important for a few reasons, right? So you know we talk a lot about, and, and we're not the only ones talking about this. The world is moving fast, and organizations need to keep up, right? And I think that's a real paradigm shift from, you know, the analog age where no doubt there were important decisions, but the world generally moved a little slower, right? You had to decide where to put the factory, but once you built the factory, you're not moving the factory and neither are your competitors. Well, that's not the case when you're building mobile apps or websites, right? There are companies out there that literally update their mobile app on a daily or weekly basis, right? They're iterating. There's no decision that is a final decision that they're making. They're changing. So if they're changing, that means that your organization needs to change as well because it's a competitive environment, right? And so that really uh, exponentially increases the number of decisions that need to get made, but we didn't exponentially increase the number of researchers that exist in an organization, right? And so I think that's where a lot of the pressure comes from. We There's a lot more that can be done, which means there's a lot more decisions that need to be made. But if we don't satisfy that demand, basically what happens, we're just making decisions based on opinion or based on guesses. And uh, that's not a really great way to win in a market. So agile research is, is a term that's kind of emerged in the last few years, and it means a few different things. And I personally like to think back to the alleged and probably not accurate quote that uh, Henry Ford, again, allegedly said, 
which is, you know, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have set a faster horse, right? They wouldn't have set a car. I think that's really the case with research. What, what, what's happening is this pressure and this supply and demand dynamic I've described is leading a lot of organizations to think like, oh, well, I guess we need to run research faster so that we can run more of it. And that's certainly one approach. And it's an approach a lot of organizations take. We take a little bit of a different and a more nuanced perspective on agile research. We, we think that doing research faster, one, can lead to a lot of quality problems, but two, also isn't really going to satisfy uh, the amount of supply that's out there because it's not like a two or three X. It's more of, a, like I said before, a exponential. It's a magnitude difference, right? So what we've said is, hey, wait a minute. Let's take a look at all these questions all these decision makers throughout the business have, whether they're in product management or strategy or innovation. There's actually a lot of similarities, right? They're, they're trying to understand a lot of similar sorts of things, similar sorts of things like uh, pain points and gaps that might exist in a market, uh, concepts that they want to get, just some basic preliminary feedback on, right? They've got 900 ideas, 893 of which are terrible, seven of which are good, but they don't know which is which, right? And they just want to get some preliminary data before they go and work with their research teams and commission a study. And so what we found is that these sorts of very, very common high volume questions that business and decision makers have uh, these can be templatized, right? This sort of research can be templatized and it can be almost a fill in the blank sort of research that can be executed without a whole lot of handholding and without a whole lot of expertise. Maybe there's some expertise involved in configuring the templatization of these questions and of this research, but there's not really expertise required to run and execute the research every single time. And so that's, that's how we define agile research. We actually define it as a subset of questions and research that can be executed. It's not market research. It's not focused groups. We don't think those need to be made substantially faster. We think you know that's where expertise and quality-driven research is really important. What we really think of with agile research is all the questions that are very common, very recurring, and can really be templatized and streamlined with a different approach and a different technique. So that leads, uh, that's a good segue into my next question, right? Is, is how do you uh, establish the line between what can be accomplished by a more novice data seeker and when a project is better left in the hands of an expert? What are those factors that contribute to that discussion? Maybe what are some examples? You, you, you listed some okay. that you should definitely leave in the hands of, of experts like focus groups, but what are some really good tangible examples of, of, of how we make that decision and what kind can be democratized? Yeah, definitely. Well, th this has been an evolving ecosystem. You know, since we started the business, you know, companies weren't really talking about experiments, right? At best, the, the lean movement was just starting to take off. And there was not a lot of consistency and standardization from one business to another. And so we've really had a front row seat uh, of watching, like, what are these common questions that agile teams, product teams, strategy teams, you know, the, the audiences you, you talked about earlier for, for this podcast, like, what are the sorts of commonalities across their questions? And Every company is different and every, every stakeholder is different, but generally speaking, there are some commonalities. So what we look at is like, very, to begin, when does your decision have to be made, right? If the decision has to be made tomorrow, well, then odds are we're not talking about the sort of decision that is really like market moving, right? We're not talking about like, no one comes to you and says, I need a, a really accurate size of how big this market is and I need it by tomorrow, right? That's like a more of a strategic decision. Like oh, we need to optimize the pricing. We need to come out with a new pricing plan. Rarely are these sorts of decisions, the sort of thing you need to make tomorrow. And if, and if you do, then you're probably already several months behind and you've got other issues, right? So we're talking about the sorts of, maybe they're tactical, uh, they, they might be strategic, but they're decisions that need to be made on a more regular cadence. So 
think of things like, hey, we've got development resources. We're doing, you know, two week sprints and we need to prioritize our next sprint. We've got a backlog of 50 ideas. Probably there's some degree of validation behind all of them or most of them. But whether, you know, feature A comes before feature B, that's anyone's guess. And we need a real sense of how to prioritize those. Or we need to know, like, should we even partner with our research stakeholders to do discovery into this new product concept? Like, is there even like a semblance of a pain point there? Is there a market gap that exists? Like, we'd love to know in the next few days if this is something even worth having a conversation about. So that's really the, the major criteria, like the, the cadence of the decision, the, the, the turnaround time required. And then it's really like, uh, the second is, can it be templatized? Like, is this a decision we have to make once per year it only comes up, you know, infrequently, or is it the sort of decision we have to make fairly frequently where we can reuse a lot of the same sort of templated questions where we just have to fill in the blank? Uh, that's, that's really the second criteria. So the first is, you know, how quickly do you need it turned around? And the second is how frequently is it the decision you're making? If it's a quick turnaround and a high frequency, odds are we can templatize it in our platform. And that's when we recommend agile research. And the inverse is true too. If you come into our platform at Feedback Loop and you start you know, trying to create the sort of studies that, that really require research expertise, we'll actually kick it out of our system and we'll kick it over to your research team that is typically also onboarded into our platform and say, hey, you might want to go talk to the stakeholder. It sounds like they might need a pricing study or to segment the market in a way that really requires a little bit more, uh, you know, handholding. Well, that's interesting too, because I imagine that gives our research partners a lot more confidence in what we're doing over here when they know there's a kind of checks and balances. That's um, exactly the idea. And one of the reasons I think that that they they were looking for checks and balances, right? There are certain things about even quick studies uh, that are fairly repetitive that you want to set up correctly in order to avoid things like bias. Uh, bias is a big problem in our surveys. Uh, and so how, how do you guys address that? What kind of biases are you look at? Is it built into the template? Um, how do we address those concerns in this faster turnaround environment with people who maybe aren't research experts? Yeah, absolutely. Bias is a, is a huge problem across the world, but in particular in, in research and product management. And so we, we take multiple approaches. You know, there's a thought leadership approach, which really uh, extend outside of using our platform. But, you know, the, the best way to mitigate bias is always to look at things from multiple perspectives, right? So we, we tell all of our customers, like, we should not be your silver bullet. Like, we should not be your only source of data. You need multiple sources of data that, that give you a 360 degree view. You don't want to go into product management with blinders on and one source of data. That's a very good way to fail, right? And so there, there's that kind of micro, that, sorry, that, that kind of macro perspective. But then within the research, you know, we see a lot of bias in both the beginning of scripting questions, but also toward the end with analyzing the data. You may have scripted everything the right way, but then you go and make a, a very biased decision based on a preconceived notion at the end. So something we try to do is make it so that you don't need to have research expertise uh, to input tests or to analyze results. So what, what does that mean? Uh, that means that here, here's a common example. Uh, many research platforms, you get the results. And the first thing you do is you export it as a CSV and you go and create cross tabs and you analyze every answer by every demographic and every uh, you know, other answer and try to find kind of outliers in the data. Well, our platform automatically does all that for you and surfaces the insights. But not only that, it's looking at sentiment analysis on the text responses so that if someone says, hey, everyone loves my idea, you could do a quick glance 
and just see it. Well, actually 60% were negative. So let's dig into that a little bit more before just taking things at face value. A lot of the dangers in research comes when, when we have what we call lossy data, right? Where you take this raw data, this customer feedback or consumer feedback, and then you go and turn it into a PowerPoint. The moment that happens, there's a lot of bias introduced into the headers and into what's prioritized and into what's highlighted, right? And we, we try to minimize the amount of expert or just you know uh, individualized interpretation that has to happen. We try to make that happen within the platform and make it digestible by everyone so that, that it really uh, doesn't allow for people to, to kind of go off the rails with the, with the data. And it's such a big need, right? Both the need to get more data and more research faster, but to make sure that in the speed and by going a, a, around other resources that you're not degradating kind of what you're exactly. getting. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's where we've seen a lot of the bias over the years is like, and, and, and researchers have complained about this for decades, right? They create these studies and, you know, <laughs> what they say is the product team went and made the decision they were going to make anyway, and that they, they cherry pick data. Right. And so we really try to protect against cherry picking. Um, and, and we have a, a number of ways to do that in the platform where, you know, there's a lot of context behind the survey that's included so that you understand why was it scripted this way? Why, why are the questions written the way they're written? And you can get more of the, the narrative and the context. And you're not just looking at individual data points at any given time. No, that's really great too, because I, I, I know in my career, and I'm sure I'm not the only one on this uh, listening, uh, I have I, I know that sometimes when I bring data, it is like, oh, she probably cherry picked, even when you didn't. You're like, nope. Mm -mm. Uh, but people also bring their bias in. So again, having this sort of structured approach to it could be great. Um, another place that I think we, we run into bias and also sometimes trouble in doing a particularly quick turnaround research is audience acquisition, right? Mm -hmm. How do I get in front of audience quickly? How do I not just keep asking the same 10 people for their opinion? Uh, is that something that you address either in your system or if not in your system, how, how would you help people kind of get that, that access to a wider market? Yeah, absolutely. So we exclusively run surveys against online panels, right? We don't manage our own panels. We integrate with a, a number of panel providers. So try to get diversity and sample, but these are definitely people. They are compensated for their time. They are online panels. They may or may not be our customers' customers, right? Often they're a target uh, audience. So it might be their current customers. It might be their aspirational customers or what have you. And that's one of the reasons that we really recommend complementing our data and insights with other forms. Maybe it's, you know, off the shelf sort of Gartner and Forrester reports, or maybe uh, it's their own CRM and their own, you know, analytical data, right? And so... That's the approach we take. We, we really try to fill the gap for companies that want to get outside their bubble. Kind of like you said, there's only so many times you can inundate the same 10 customers in your beta group with another concept or to get feedback on, on something you're thinking about, right? And so we, we really uh, strive to fill that gap of, of getting outside the bubble of, you know, the, the common example I always give is, you know, if you're uh, a very, uh, let's call it uh, unhealthy ice cream shop, right? You could very reasonably say we are very customer driven. We get tons of feedback and no customer wants healthy food, right? Like no one out there wants to be healthy. Well, it's like, yeah, because in the bubble you're in, all the people going to your, to your shop probably aren't prioritizing 
you know, healthy food. So it's really important to get outside your bubble so that you're, you're not missing bigger market trends and market opportunities. And that's, that's where we try to fill the gap. So it's interesting because uh, in, in prep for this podcast, I was talking to a couple of our product managers and we were discussing how fun this would be. Uh, and one of them brought up a topic uh, that I think is really interesting and probably very relevant today, right? That the idea of uh, in the digital age uh, and the ability for all voices to be amplified has certainly led a sense that two opposing views have equal validity and that the volume of the ask, uh, sort of assertion, the comment is more important than the experience of the speaker. So how do you empower the democratization of data with, and research without abdicating the notion of expertise? Interesting. Yeah. So there, there's a few different things here. So uh, one thing we've done over the years is invested much, much more heavily into the participant experience, the survey participant experience. You know, even when we, even just seven years ago when we started the business, most surveys were taken on web. Well, that's changed dramatically, right? There are audiences that are only accessible both domestically and internationally via mobile, right? And so we've had to rebuild and re-engineer our entire participant experience to be mobile first to make sure we can reach more audiences, more diverse populations than before. And that's something we're really proud of and something we released earlier this year and that we've worked really hard on. And I think we, we've done uh, some cutting edge uh, innovation in that space. Right. And, and we've seen it translate into just dramatically easier to, to reach populations. Uh, but that also is, it's been our mission statement from day one, right, is to empower more decision makers to make data driven decisions. Right. And not opinion based decisions. But, you know, we, we talk about this all the time as well. Like uh, data doesn't make decisions. People make decisions. Right. And we are only as successful as the people we enable to use the data to tell a story. So that means that we can't just give someone a chart, right? They have to be able to export it in whatever format. They have to be able to share it. They have to be able to comment and collaborate with other people. And, and sometimes it's consensus, sometimes it's alignment, sometimes it's, you know, disagree and commit, but we have to make it so that more people can really participate and share their experiences. So one of the, the most common features in the platform is really people's ability to comment and interpret charts and get other perspectives on on how you know how they're looking at the data and how they're interpreting it. And so again, it's like at, at any individual scope, it's very biased. But when you really bring multiple people together, you get much more of that three hundred sixty degree perspective. You know, and that sort of data visualization, the data fluency, being able to explain your findings is so important. It's one of the things we see so often uh, with the data scientists that we work with and train is. They, they have all the data and they have these great models and they have these conclusions, but they can't tell the story of how they got, of what they, of what they mm -hmm. see. It's so clear to them, right? But, but translating that into the audience, into the business so that they understand, they find it credible and then that been, and actionable, right? That they can take action on that data is definitely a place that, uh, that, that we see a big struggle. Uh, now that's that's obviously in, in the sort of the big research projects, but I think it also translates into into these into the the quicker sort of templatized ones. Is that same really big need uh, to be able to easily and clearly uh, communicate your findings? Yep, yep. Telling a story is is really important, and uh, especially upwards, right? Because executives who who often still in many organizations make some of the strategic product decisions, right? They they need to, to see compelling evidence, right? They need to feel the pain of the customer and really hear that so that they can be swayed from their opinions, right? And so if you don't have a way to 
to, to convince them and tell them the story that gets them to see things from the customer's perspective, like all the data in the world and all the really advanced data science doesn't matter, right? And so uh, we really want to empower storytelling from the customer and the consumer's perspective. Awesome. All right. Another question, uh, maybe a little bit less about your product, but more about just sort of of you and how you're managing your day-to-day pieces. But, you know, as both a researcher, a product person, agile leader, uh, you've likely experienced a similar issue that almost everyone here uh, has when it comes to priority, which is how to balance long-term strategic projects with day-to-day new requests that can pull your attention, time, resources. How do you personally approach that problem? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I don't think there's, uh, you know, a perfect answer here. It's, it's you kind of already said it. It's, it's already a balance, right? And so, you know, the way we think about it is that uh, we have kind of different levels of fidelity at any given time, right? We have, you know, our view on how uh, the market is evolving, and it's, it's. I wouldn't even really say it's our view. We heavily prioritize the customer's view. So, um, you know. The way I, I would recommend, and I talk to other product leaders, is like, we don't have a view of the competition. Our customers has a view of the competition. We don't have a view of the pain points. Our customers have a view of the pain points. Obviously, we our job is to really interpret that and digest that. But, but you know, things are happening in faster cycles than ever before. So, you know, the, the, the three-year view has become the one-year view, right? And so, so these things condense, but they still happen at different layers of fidelity. There's still the kind of the one-year trend, the six-month trend, and the three-month trend. Uh, and, and then maybe even, you know, the day-to-day trenches and things come up. Uh, there's one, one principle that we use in our organization, in our product organization, that's been really helpful. We like to think of the customers living in the future and the customers living in the past. And that gives us um, kind of tent poles, if you will, uh, to, to really frame anything that comes up on a day-to-day basis. So let me describe what I'm talking about. We have customers, and, and this, is a, this is like a common product management metaphor, like who are the customers, who are the companies out there that are, that are so aspirational, so want to solve a problem that they are doing it in the most heinous and ugly way. They are duct taping different solutions and manual workflows together to get something done, right? Uh, you know, those are the companies that, you know, to think of examples, maybe before CRMs were out, we're doing like all these advanced sort of spreadsheets and, and binders and documents because like they knew that managing the customer relationships was the competitive advantage for their business. And they were finding a way to do it before, you know, Oracle and Salesforce really had cloud solutions for it. Right. And so those are your customers living in the future and you can learn a lot from them. Right. You can build for them and. And in many ways, every other company will look like them in the future. But then you also need the opposite, right? Who are the companies that just won't change, refuse to change? And they're kind of your like uh, your antithesis, right? Those are the companies that you, you want to like kind of stay away from and not solve for because they will want everything solved in the status quo. And it's a very limiting uh, and, and, and non-ideal way to build products, right? And so if you have those two, you, you can kind of solve for the former and there's a huge market that ends up forming around that in the coming years. So that, that's one of the kind of guiding principles of our product organization, really distinguishing those two groups. You know, we have customers in both groups. Most customers are obviously in the middle, but, but if we have those two perspectives, then any sort of feedback that comes up on a day-to-day basis 
on a you know the long-term fidelity cycle or the shorter term, we can at least bucket it so we know like which mental model to put it in. That's a great idea. It's a great idea. I have to say too that uh, I mean I think that's a problem that all of the everyone in product faces, right? The how do you balance the short-term versus the long-term? I also think it's it's you know, it's kind of what researchers face as well, right? There's the big projects, the conjoint studies, the things that are, are you know, si- really deep market sizing studies that help you know where to take your business. And then there's all the questions of where we should focus in, in immediacy. Uh, and I think the idea of democratizing research uh, is a lot like, and you make this comparison in, in several of your thought pieces of, of sort of the no code options, right? The things like, who doesn't love Zapier, right? Uh, and, yep. and being able yep. to do those integrations without needing the IT resources, it's, it's where else can we provide the kind of access that we need to make quick decisions and not to, to wrestle control away from another group, but really to let that other group focus on the high value areas where their expertise is 100% required. Yeah, I, I think you kind of nailed it. That's been the, the relationship we've had with the research community over the last few years, it's like coming to the realization that we're on the same team and that we have the same goal, which is that we want strategic research to occur. But the way to ensure sustainable strategic research is not for researchers to have to be involved in every single study and every single decision that a company makes, because then they're just bogged down in very tactical decisions and tactical studies all day, and they miss the big picture. And that's really dangerous, right? We want to work with them to say, okay, let's let's be real here. Like the same question gets asked 10,000 times in an organization. We, there's got to be a better way to answer that than for uh, someone with a PhD to be involved every single time. Let's templatize and scale that solution so that the PhDs can be involved in the things that actually require that level of expertise. Absolutely. And then just the the sort of communication you guys have built in and some of the best practices also gives them comfort, right? Because it's what they know they don't have the bandwidth and yet they have such an aversion for all of us doing it wrong, (laughs) rightfully so. They've seen that go bad, uh, that 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 balance is is important. I firmly believe that like, you know, research that creates more noise than signals is not useful, but like making decisions with opinions isn't much better if it's even better anyway. Right. And so like, we have to be real that the overwhelming majority of decisions in most businesses are, are made by opinions and it'll continue to be that way for a very long time. But the, the fewer decisions made with opinions, the better. And so in as much as we can create signals instead of noise, like we're on the same team. Awesome. All right. So we've talked about a ton of different things today. Uh, if you were going to get our listeners to do two things differently tomorrow, based on what we talked about today, what would that be? That's a really good question. So I think, you know, our, our, our motto uh, within our organization, but, you know, with across product management is really around experimentation, right? We need to change the language from what, you know, it's not binary. It's not we democratize research or we don't democratize research, right? It it always comes in phases. It always comes in experiments. It always comes in iterations, right? And so what is one way we can empower more people to make data-driven decisions? Perhaps we just begin with the product teams or the marketing teams or strategy teams where there's people with research backgrounds already. Maybe they're not currently in a research role, but at least they have some research expertise. Can we pilot a program with just them to begin where we can hand off a little bit more of the research you know, heavy lifting to them? Can they self-serve on it 
so that we can expand the amount of research done within the organization. Because that's, that's ultimately the goal, is more research, more customer feedback, and more data-driven decisions, not less, right? So how can we do that in as least biased of a way as possible, right? So that, that would be the first, is like to, to really think in terms of experiments and pilots, and we'll learn from it, and we'll see what works, right? The second thing I would say that we've talked about is, is really about getting outside your bubble, right? I think there are trends that we are just starting to talk about uh, because of, of 2020 and the pandemic that's continuing, right? Work from home, we don't know what it's going to look like, right? There, there are trends. Some companies are going to get rid of the office. You know, we just talked about this. Some companies are going to get rid of the office. Some companies are going to go hybrid. These are hypotheses. These are not like these things are not set in stone over the course of years. We don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And that's just in you know the remote work future. There's a whole bunch of trends. Is telehealth here to stay? Right. It's really important for companies to get outside the bubble and really start talking to people they don't normally talk to, asking questions that they haven't asked before. Right. And thinking, is there a big opportunity or a big risk, a big threat that they aren't thinking about? Right. And so I think it's going to be more important than ever to, to talk to, to more people and to get more perspectives because things are going to change very, very quickly and unpredictably. Great advice, Miss. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. Awesome. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 